Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, including the cult hits Lucifer, Hellblazer, Transmetropolitan. And today we are reading Sandman Presents Lucifer the Morning Star option. Let's not rush past that moment. I mean, we are in Vertiguys Phase 2 now. Welcome to Phase 2. Sunrise, sunset, <laughs> sunrise. That's a good musical, but not in my top five. Okay, now we can move past the moment. Now, I know we promised this week would be our Sandman roundtable, but what better way to introduce Lucifer than through trickery and lies? Honestly, schedules made recording that episode more difficult than we expected. That is still on the table, we just don't know exactly when. So, these comic books were written by Mike Carey. They have art by Scott Hampton, letters by Todd Klein. They were edited by Alyssa Quitney, assistant editor for Jennifer Lee, and Neil Gaiman is credited as consultant. Right. These are from about 1999. And the covers are also by Scott Hampton. On the first cover, we have Lucifer in a black trench coat and gloves, backed up against a wall with wings of flame. It's pretty cool looking. Now... Before we get entirely into this comic, we should probably talk a little bit about Lucifer the character. A little recap? Previously on Sandman, Lucifer the angel fell. He couldn't stand servitude to God, but he also fears that even the fall was part of God's plan. He ruled hell for a billion years, and then he got bored and quit. He ruled hell for a billion years? I don't know if it was a billion years. I think it was a really long time. At some point in this series that we just read, and I don't remember where... But I think at some point somebody says something about half a million years okay. as being his age. I also remember the phrase a nanosecond after creation, but I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, it's either his age or the age of the world, but I think that they're the same. So, okay. So yeah, he definitely didn't rule hell for a billion years. The important part is he got bored and quit. Yes. So he runs a nightclub in L.A. called Lux, along with Mazakine, a female demon with a half-rotted face who's in love with him. Uh, but at the end of Sandman, he had gotten bored with that, too, and planned to leave with Mazakine in tow. Right. And, previously on Hellblazer, John Constantine tricked the Archangel Gabriel into sleeping with a succubus and falling from heaven, so he is living homeless on the streets of London, and he's effectively out of the picture. And, previously on Star Trek Voyager, Chakotay and Seven of Nine infiltrated a Borg transwarp hub. Okay. And that brings us to the Morning Star option, part one. Yeah, this is three issues that we're reading here. We're going to do the whole mini-series in one shot, and then we'll be back with issue one of the ongoing series in our next Lucifer episode. So we open up on six panels of darkness. Yeah, this is kind of difficult to recap, but it has some good lines in it. Basically, the idea is that there's different creation stories. Yeah. In the Christian creation story... First there was darkness, and then there was light. But in another creation story, it was a journey from the darkness to the light. And the darkness was left behind, and still exists. Right. There's a voice telling this story, and it's apparently telling it to someone who doesn't really understand it, or isn't really receiving it. The voice we're going to find out is Lucifer. And he says that the listeners people believe the dark was a tunnel that they emerged from, but the darkness is still there in the first world. Whatever lived there then lives there still, though your kind abandoned this place half a million years ago. There you go. There are forests of black oaks a hundred feet tall, standing invisible in the dark. There are creatures, predators, that have not eaten in geological ages. That's fucking rad. So they are there still waiting for prey and for prayer. Right, and also, by leaving the darkness and being born into the light, human beings according to this creation story, left these predators in the darkness behind, betrayed them. Mm -hmm. And they are not the types to forgive and forget. Now we hard cut to a doctor giving a test to a guy named Paul Beguy. Paul has Rett syndrome, which is a genetic brain disorder, very rare in boys, but it does happen, with no known cure. So he's mentally retarded and has severe physical limitations as well. Right, and he's totally non-communicative. Right. It's clear that he can make vocalizations, but not speak at all. Paul's father thinks that he is responding better, that maybe he's going to get better, be able to speak, but the doctor tells him, no way. Put that out of your mind. And we've also got his sister, Rachel, here, 
she is not the model of attentiveness. She's dressed somewhat inappropriately for this particular chore, and she's just sitting in the window, staring out into the street. Yeah. Now Rachel sees something out the window. She says there's a woman messing with her dad's car, and then the woman passes, but ignores, a homeless guy. And the homeless guy has a huge sack of money that he found. Look! I found this! That's nice. Take care, take care now. And it looks like a crazy homeless woman has received a love letter from someone that she has long held a torch for. Oh, okay, that's what that is. Got it. On the drive home, Rachel and her dad hear on the radio that 800 people simultaneously won the lottery, each collecting less than $3,000 as a result. We also learn that Rachel has to watch Paul tonight while her dad makes up the hours he missed at work, which ruins her plans for the evening. Yeah, this is kind of a an everyone sucks here situation. Yeah. I think dad is being, like, very dismissive of, like, oh, yeah, I really appreciate you looking after him, but he never really asks, mm-hmm. and he doesn't seem to understand, you know, how much his daughter yearns to be able to enjoy her own life. Mm-hmm. Rachel, for her part, is also kind of a dick about it. Yeah, she keeps making passive-aggressive comments to the effect that she's, you know, that he doesn't have to ask, that he, she has never asked. No problem. All part of the service. Yeah, we get an exchange between them, like Rachel's memory of an exchange between them, where he's asking her to come along to the doctor's appointment. He's your brother. You'd want to be there for your brother, wouldn't you, Rachel? Yeah, Dad, fine. It's just a school day. I'll just miss it. No problem. My time is yours, obviously. So, now we cut to Lux, and it seems like Lux is still open. So it seems. So maybe this is just a retcon that Lux never closed, or maybe he moved it to a different location or something. I guess it's been about four or five years since the end of the Sandman series. Maybe he closed it and then he got bored of not having it and went back. Anyway, it's apparent that Mike Carey decided that he wanted Lux in the picture, so here it is. There's an employee named Beatrice. Ha. Why is that funny? Because of uh, Dante's Inferno. Is that the name of Dante's love? I think it's Beatrix, but close enough. I see. Uh, She wants to close up until the night shift, but she can't because there's a rude customer demanding to see the owner. I have said that I wish to see the proprietor. Uh, were you able to read the words on this ashtray that Lucifer is putting a cigarette out in? Horus, Hawk, Opus, Hick? I don't know what it means. I'm not sure that that's everything. Hmm. Hawk, Opus, Hick, Labor, Est means this is the hard part. This is the labor. Oh, it's a quotation from the Aeneid. What does it mean? I don't know. The Aeneid is, of course, by Virgil, and Virgil is the guide to hell in the Inferno. So that's two Inferno references, or Divine Comedy references, I should say, in quick succession. We're going to find out that this conception of the devil is nothing if not well-read. Now, this guy, this weird guy, he has a big squarish face, and he has long gray or white hair. And this, we are about to learn, is a menadeal. Lucifer instructs Mazikeen, Bring us two glasses from my special bottle, the one on the left. So as Lucifer meets the guy, he quotes John or Johann Trithemius on angels, whose feet may not touch the ground, nor any foulness stain their garments, for they are the seventh sphere, which is above corruption. The devil can cite scripture for his purpose. Good day to you, Lucifer Morningstar. And that's from the Merchant of Venice. Lucifer takes issue with the quote about angels, though. He says these are not uh, pure, clean angels. Amenadiel is one of the thrones, and the thrones, he says, do the dirty work for heaven. There is no room for doubt or scruple in the service of the name. If you realized that, you might still be of the host. Lucifer says that this visit is unwelcome, and he's retired. I would have thought you'd be bored. It's difficult to let go of power when you've been used to exercising it, to settle down and grow roses up the door. And yet here I am, and the old firm is in new hands, and the world goes on. Amenadiel makes his drink start to bubble and then burst into flame, and he spreads it out across the tablecloth. <laughs> yeah, and Lucifer has a great snark in response to this. That's an 80-year-old Yano Armagnac. If I'd known you were going to waste it on melodrama, I'd have given you the 78. The world is on fire, Lucifer Morningstar. I wanted to make that point forcefully. Mazakin shows up with a fire extinguisher, but Lucifer waves her off. 
Now, Amenadiel, it turns out, is here to give Lucifer a job, although he doesn't personally approve of the decision to do so. There is a power at work on Earth which is granting human wishes. Yeah, and this is what we've seen over the last couple of pages. People winning the lottery, people getting unexpected love letters. But there are more and more wishes being granted, and if humans realize they can have anything they want, Amenadiel says they'll tear each other to pieces. You know the nature of human desire. Lucifer asks, why me? It turns out that Heaven doesn't want to directly act in this matter, but nor do they want to leave it to its own devices. Lucifer provides a third option. The Morningstar option. Amenadiel says, I'm told you will name your price. That I may name my price, or that I will name it? Will. You'd think part of omniscience would be knowing when to stop. But he ends up requesting a letter of passage. Ah, oh, but he'll already know that, won't he? So he takes the job, but first he wants Amenadiel to apologize for damaging the table. In accordance with my instructions, which were to give you anything you asked for, I apologize, Lucifer Morningstar, for the damage to your table. Amenadiel leaves, and Lucifer tells Mazakin they won't be opening tonight after all. Then he asks for a knife and a pigeon. Mazakin provides them and asks, in her somewhat arseface-like way of talking, mm -hmm. if she should provide a bowl to catch the blood. Yeah, Mazakin can't speak with half of her face, and that is represented phonetically here. But he says he's not sacrificing the bird. The knife, instead, he uses to carve Memsoth, the rune of finding, into his own hand, and he plucks two feathers from the bird. Now you, don't be so frightened, I'm not hungry. And before leaving, he asks for his coat and the other bottle, the one on the right. Meanwhile, at Rachel's house, Dad finishes feeding Paul, and then he leaves him at the window so he can watch the kids playing, and he heads out, giving Rachel her instructions. It seems pretty obvious to me that even though the doctor said not to hold out hope for this, that Dad is still holding out hope that Paul will learn to speak normally. Oh yeah, he completely brushed it off in the car. The doctor said, put it out of your mind, and he says, in the car, maybe we can take him to a speech therapist. Right. So Dad is... Dad is very sunny, uh, I think, about the prospects for Paul's improvement, mm -hmm. which I think is intended both as a counterpoint to Rachel, mm -hmm. who kind of almost doesn't consider Paul even alive, you know? Yeah. And it also provides, like, a sort of extra bit of annoyance for her, you know? It's not just that her brother has all these needs that she has to tend to, it's also that her father is so wrapped up in him mm -hmm. that he doesn't even really see reality. Right, right. So Rachel displays some very dismissive behavior here. As soon as her dad is gone, she calls for her friends to come over, and she gets Paul set up in his bedroom. Look, you've got Teddy and Rabbit and Sophie, okay? And it looks like they've got booze and weed. Yeah, I definitely see weed. But... Practically smell it through the page. <laughs> There's a comment here about the guy not checking her ID, so I guess she bought some booze as well. Oh, uh, gosh, she must have. Meanwhile, Lucifer enters a warehouse, and he is met by a little goblin in sunglasses. I gotta say, these are a statement. Far enough, Prince of Hell! Far enough and a little more! Ah, oh, the hospitality of the Lilum. I wonder what it died of. So this guy is Mahu, and Lucifer is here to see his master, Briadoc the Blind, though Mahu acknowledges no master. What do you want here, Lucifer? Information. I have an occasional arrangement with your master, which he may have mentioned to you. Lucifer mostly ignores Mahu as he goes up to meet Briadoc. Mahu does some trash talking about how when the Lilib take over the world, Lucifer will die just like everybody else. And Lucifer kind of says, well, that'll be the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Lucifer's dialogue is particularly sparkling in these three issues. We can't call out every great burn that he gets, but there are a lot of them. Gets or gives? Gives is what I meant. He gets some good ones, too. There are some nice moments where people stand up to Lucifer, and I do appreciate that. So, Briadoc is this enormous fat man, and he's sleeping... He's, he's I guess a he's not a big fat person. It is what it is. And he's not... I, I said he was sleeping. He's not sleeping, but he does have a sack over his head, which is apparently there to, to blindfold him. He refers to someone named Samael, which Lucifer confirms is actually him. Yeah, and Lucifer gives him a little bit of shit about having a cover over his eyes. And he says, 
You know exactly what I see. You know exactly how much blindness heaven has allowed to me. So it seems like Briadoc has a sort of curse that he's under to see the future. Yeah, he's physically blind, but he has constant visions of things going on, other places, other times. Which is what makes him convenient for Lucifer. Yeah, exactly. Lucifer offers him some healing water, some water of Lethe, uh, but he won't let him have it until he gives the information, because it dulls his special sight. I want to mention this before we move on. Briadoc makes a reference to, and this is his phrasing, I don't necessarily think it's an appropriate thing to say, the Chaldean bitch, which is going to come back. Uh, do we know who that is? We don't, but we will meet that character eventually. Well, speaking of Briadoc being politically incorrect, he sends Lucifer to a home in North Hollywood. There is a man called Paul Bagai. A man in years, I mean, not in any other sense. Yes, and Braddock mentions that the, the power, the power that's granting wishes, lingers around him. It winds over and through him. So Paul is kind of at the center of this. On his way out, Lucifer reminds Briadoc, Drink sparingly. I don't have a steady line of supply these days. And Mahu watches Lucifer as he goes. Back at the house, Rachel is hanging out with her friends. And we get a little bit of backstory here. We learn that Rachel is half Navajo on her father's side, and that her grandfather is a witch doctor or a shaman. In his room, Paul is getting sick, and he accidentally smashes the lamp by his bed. Yeah, Rachel runs in to find out what's going on. She's upset that he's thrown up and broken the lamp, and when he gets some vomit on her, she snaps at him. You dirty little bastard, why don't you just choke? And we get a close-up on Paul's face as he chokes and dies. Damn. That is, we can assume, the wish-granting power that as she... Wished it just for a moment, it happened. Right. Lucifer appears in the room. I don't know about you, but I didn't get the impression that he walked past her friends on his way in. No, absolutely not. <laughs> Excuse me, I'd like to examine him. Who, who are you? What are you doing? Curious. This was a more complex transaction than I thought. An exchange, a two-way flow. Power was expended here, but power was generated, too. A valeity. Some moron has created a valeity. Lucifer asks if Paul could talk. He couldn't. Lucifer thinks that maybe this power is drawn to silence for some reason. Then he explains what we had kind of guessed, that the wishing power responded to Rachel's desire when she wished her brother dead. When I what? Are you crazy? I didn't want this to happen. Of course you did. You, you cold bastard. He's my brother. Go to hell. Go straight to fucking hell. Yes, I've been hoping to avoid that, but you're right. There's no getting around it, is there? Next, we see Lucifer at the gates of hell. Home again, home again. Jiggity jig. This is a pretty cool page. Lucifer walking through the dark mists and up to the gate of hell. This brings us to part two. The cover gives us Lucifer and Rachel. Yeah, they're standing in this sort of mist. There are horrors collecting behind them in the background. And we can see blood dripping down the camera. This cover is also by Scott Hampton. Yes. I'd just like to take this time to say something important. I hate Rachel's outfit. Yeah, no, I... Well, you know what? I don't <laughs> like it. I especially don't see, like, how she could get away with wearing it to school. Mm, <laughs> or okay. to a doctor's office. But at the same time, it's kind of Tifa's outfit. Yeah, Tifa's, Tifa's uh, Advent Children outfit when she has the black top. Right, yeah, not, not in the game where she has a white top, but really the color of the top is the only difference. Maybe I'm not giving enough credit. Maybe people actually dressed like this in 1999, but she's got a uh, sort of shortcut, loose top, something like bike shorts, and what looked like big Doc Martin boots. It's yeah. all in black. It just strikes me as a very, like, utilitarian outfit for a character to have. Well, yeah, I mean, except for the big boots, which would make it impractical, it's like the perfect... The outfit kind of says that she should be actively engaged in riding a skateboard. <laughs> <laughs> so we get a quick recap here from the point of view of Briadoc, who is apparently watching these events from some distance away. Wishes are being granted. Lucifer's gone to hell. That's what you need to know. We've got two demons here. They're tearing a guy in a suit's guts out. So I guess hell ain't changed all that much. But they note in surprise that Lucifer is back. Uh, 
Just hold yourself in for a minute or two, would you? Normal service will be resumed, uh, what is it, uh, shortly. <laughs> That's kind of funny. <laughs> the guy says, <laughs> Insupportable. Simply insupportable, Remiel, the angel says, as he sees Lucifer. We saw the angels Remiel and Duma take over management of hell after Lucifer left in the Sandman story arc Season of Mists and it was made clear that they intended to turn it from a place of suffering to a place of redemption. Yeah, more on that in a minute. Lucifer shoots back, Little pig, little pig, let me in. Remiel yells at Lucifer for quite a few panels here, for screwing up the delicate work of redemption, and basically, you don't get to come back. Lucifer tries to remind Remiel that he once asked Lucifer to return. Yeah, well, it's it's... So this is interesting. Even though it's obvious, like, nothing has changed, you've got demons pulling a guy's guts out with a knife. Yes. Why they don't just use their claws, I'm, that's weird, but um, they are using a knife. But he says that uh, redemption is at a very delicate stage. And Lucifer kind of puts his finger on it when he says, yes, and your standing with your demons is also at a delicate stage. Yes, he threatens to humiliate Remiel in front of the roughly a third of the hellish host that have gathered here destroying his power over hell if he doesn't let him in, so he lets him in. Back at Rachel's house, we find Rachel crying. Her friends are worried about the cops showing up, although no one's called them, but then the doorbell rings. Well, I guess someone called them. But it's not the cops, it's Mahu, and he kicks the door open, slamming it into the face of Linda, the girl who went to answer it. Yeah, he has two goons here who are... Dressed exactly like him, except <laughs> substantially taller. Yeah. Which makes it kind of funny to see him, like, he's the one doing martial arts moves <laughs> and bossing them around. That is true. The thugs are basically kind of standing there. That one! Take her! He's pointing at Rachel here. Ah, uh, yes. Mahu's little power play narrates Briadak. So much anger, so little sense of direction. Lucifer finds Duma in his garden. He admits grudgingly that he's here in the service of heaven. Before you took up your place here, you were a tutelary spirit. You had care of silence. It's in that capacity that I come to you now. Yes, Duma was the angel of silence, and he is also mute, or refuses to speak, one of the two. Adam's children allow so little room in their lives for silence, and yet despite its rarity, they seem incapable of valuing it. Yes, humans don't appreciate silence enough, except, I guess, for Depeche Mode. Indeed. He reminisces about the ages before people, when the gas clouds were coalescing into suns and I was God's lamplighter. He recalls the first gods, the thin grey shadows conjured by people with no language to describe them, to give them form. But, he says, an occasional aimless prayer would be enough to sustain them all these years. They're still here. When the others came along, the gods with the firm handshakes, we see here a number of gods including Thor and Anubis. That might be a fly head in the background, Beelzebub? Not sure. It was easy to forget about the little silent ones. They're still there, aren't they, Duma? And now there's a power loose on the earth that manifests itself in silence. It seems drawn to silence, of a laity. I recognized it because I made one myself once, when I had less patience and less foresight. But this one belongs to them, the voiceless ones. So he says the spell has to be unwoven before it destroys the world. Where should he go to find them, the voiceless gods? Duma points down. How far down? Four fingers. Lucifer takes his leave. At Rachel's house, Mr. Begai is home by now, and a cop is asking who might have taken his daughter, but he doesn't have any enemies. He doesn't know anything that could help. You'd better face it, Mr. Begai. They knew what they wanted, and what they wanted was your daughter. Now one of the witnesses is dead, and the other two are under sedation. So that seems to imply that the girl who got hit in the face actually died from it. Her name we get here, by the way, it's Linda Malpass, which is... Probably a reference, though not a meaningful one in this story, to Malthus, a demon from the Goetia. They could mean that Paul is dead. They could be counting him as Oh, that's probably what it is, actually. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, at a payphone, Lucifer calls Faramond for transportation. Faramond? We met him in brief lives when Sandman, well, when Dream and Delirium made use of his services on their quest looking for destruction. Right, he's a very old god of transportation, it seems. But Lucifer's call is interrupted by Mahu, who wants to know how the Veliity can benefit him. Why, it will make your dreams come true, Mahu. Ugly as that sounds. 
My dreams are irrelevant. I claim this magic for the armies of the Lilim in exile. Give it to me and you can have the girl back unharmed. Lucifer doesn't care about the girl, and besides, he points out, she wasn't the one with the power. Still, though, it seems like she might be useful to him. Then you agree to my terms? Of course not. Yeah, he does a bit of sympathy here. But first he snaps his fingers and there's this bright light that blinds the thugs, which is, I guess, why Mahu is wearing the sunglasses. But yeah, he pulls out the two pigeon feathers and he comments as he does that because of the wishing power, magic is easier to use than ever. <laughs> he bites into the feathers and grows his own angelic wings. Yeah. So he grabs Mahu and flies straight up. You think a fall will kill me? Go ahead. I curse you, Lucifer. I spit on you. But Lucifer's plan isn't to drop him. It's to throw him up into the stratosphere. Reentry will kill you, but not for a very long time. So with that threat, he gets the girl's location from Mahu. Then he drops him. Yeah, so he, you know, he kept his word. He didn't, he didn't throw him up into the stratosphere. He just dropped him, which we know won't kill him. I'm counting on it. Meanwhile, at Lux, the power that manifests in silence, Mazakin is often silent, absorbs and possesses her. Yeah, there are these thin gray forms of mist that sort of swirl around her and then fly into her mouth. Lucifer walks in with Rachel, apparently having rescued her, and pretty much immediately figures out that Mazakin's been possessed. Very well. I presume that possessing her is a means of speaking to me. I'm listening, briefly. Mazakin causes relent to be written across the bar mirror in blood. Message written in blood. Everyone involved in this drama seems compelled to overact. Lucifer says he's not backing down without receiving a better offer. But as he's saying that, he catches Mazakin's eye in the mirror, and he and Rachel are drawn into another place. A better offer than the one Heaven gave him. Right. This, Lucifer explains, is a reality trap. A reflection of a reflection. He has the power to smash his way out, but it would require time and geological amounts. Talk to me, for Christ's sake. Am I rescued or kidnapped again, or what? What is this place? The words relent are seen in blood, this time huge in the sky over their heads. Lucifer figures this is Mazakin's blood, so maybe it knows its way home. He takes a little bit off of the mirror surface and paints a door with it. Come. You keep your hands to yourself, pal. I'm coming, but I'll tell you this much. As soon as I'm out of here, I'm on the phone, and the cops will be all over your pedophile kidnap ring ass. Stay in the center of the corridor. Don't touch anything, and if anything speaks to you, don't answer. Rachel apologizes, saying she knows he isn't actually a pedophile, because he's the one who saved her, but she's still freaked out. Yeah, she asks if they're going to be able to help Mazakin. The doctor can't help him. If we succeed in our mission, she'll recover. Now we get some really important dialogue here. As Rachel is surprised to be included in the mission. Do you want your brother back? What? Yeah, yeah, of course I do. But he's dead. If you stay with me, you'll have one chance to make him live again. Oh, fuck. Well, look, can I just phone my dad? Tell him I'm okay? He probably thinks I'm dead or something. At this stage, it's probably better not to get his hopes up. By Brianok's bedside, Mahu is apologizing for his rash actions. Yeah, and Brianok tells him essentially that this power is too dangerous to be used. We learn that various lands that never existed are appearing. You know, all the greater Israels and Palestines, the Ireland's united and divided, the sweat-stained principalities of Eastern Europe whose names were mercifully erased from history. Or perhaps you don't know, you let a lot of the last quarter of a million years go right over your head, haven't you? We're at war! What time do I have to watch their petty affairs when I contend with heaven and hell? Your war is moot, heaven's breached and hell's an empty gesture. When the world and desire become one, there will be no need of a separate place called hell. Now Lucifer and Rachel are having breakfast with Faramond. He notes that his business has been affected by all the wishing that's going on, maybe by the appearances of new lands? I had heard that you resigned your office. I was sorry on the whole. Changes in ancient orders depress me more as I grow more ancient myself. When Faramon calls Lucifer by name, Rachel finally realizes that's who he is. You? You're really him? Jesus. Ah, uh, sorry, I mean, what's the deal with Paul? You took his soul and now I've got to play some kind of game with you to get him back? No, that's not the deal. Lucifer asks for passage and a guide to the first world. Lucifer pays in advance 200 copper eyes, which are Roman coins. You may count them, although to do so will limit their usefulness. 
Now, Faramon takes a moment to confirm that Rachel is, in fact, part Navajo. That's good, he says. You can go to Sudzil. So they have a car to the airport, where they expect to pick up a flight to Albuquerque. And why exactly are we going to Albuquerque? I know New Mexico is a hellhole, but I don't believe my brother went there when he died. You really have no knowledge of your own heritage at all, do you? Never mind. We're on heaven's business, girl. There's one job that can't be left to the regular staff. We're going to kill some gods. That brings us to issue number three. On the cover here, we have a demon attacking Rachel while Lucifer watches uselessly. He also seems to be stealing something from her. The demon, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Lucifer's not stealing something from her while a demon attacks. (laughs) That would be low. (laughs) Now, they're at the airport. They can't get their flight because all the regular flights are suspended for some reason. Lucifer refuses to push because it would interfere with their shamanistic journey. They established this a little bit in the last issue. Because this is a pilgrimage, they have to actually travel, even though Lucifer can teleport. Yeah, and they have to stay morally upright, as they do. Yeah. Faramon supplies a truck. Speaking of moral uprightness, (laughs) a midnight skater running bootleg liquor and pornography down to the reservations. Yeah, the idea that the truck Faramon provides already has its own reason to go there is very much in keeping with the idea that he's in charge of all transportation. I don't have to do this, you know. I'm no fucking tourist bus. I got my own ways of working. Fucking Farrell. I owe him money, not fucking blood, okay? I got my rights. Yeah, Farrell is uh, Faramon's mortal alias. Right. We learn that they are headed for Sudzil, a.k.a. Mount Taylor, which is the most sacred place of the Diné, and it's also where the world began. Now Lucifer begins telling some familiar narration. All the races of man tell the story of their own origins, but they disagree on the details. Do the details matter? The details are all that matters. So he tells the story again from the first couple of pages about the darkness and the light, the people emerging from the darkness, but it's a place that still exists. You betrayed them when you were born into the light, and I don't imagine for a moment that they've learned to let go. I also like this line. Um, is it a birth metaphor? No, it's the thing for which birth is a metaphor. Morningtown, kiddies. End of the fucking line. We see Rachel waking up in this panel. Seemingly, the conversation she just had with Lucifer was not in front of the truck driver, it was in her dream. Oh my god. (laughs) This shit again. (laughs) (laughs) The truck driver... Makes a very disgusting joke. Ooh, he yeah. He says, get her back to school when you're done with her. You work for Faramon, so you're not in mind to chastise. All the same, for your lack of respect, some punishment is due. Say, the permanent loss of sexual potency? What do you mean? What do you mean? I ain't laughing, you hear me? Bastard! We got a nearly a half-page panel here of... God, that's a bloody big mountain. Yeah, and it's apparently bigger than it looks, as they are climbing up it... Rachel is having a hard time. Lucifer obviously isn't. It didn't look so steep from down there. It wasn't. That was Mount Taylor. This is Sudzel. You said Mount Taylor is Sudzel. Two names for the same thing. Then imagine we're climbing the name rather than the mountain, if that makes it any easier. Truth is a local phenomenon, like a microclimate. You know, I fucking hate being patronized and I fucking hate being used. So I'm just going to sit here till I get an answer I understand. That's actually a pretty good move. It's nice to see her stand up to Lucifer, and since he actually needs her, he has to stop and explain himself a little bit. She asks him if she's only here to be his ticket into the sort of world of Diné myth. He says that's not the only reason. He also convinces her that she's dreaming all this, that this is sort of an emotional journey she needs to go on to cope with Paul's death. Yeah, that's just about possible. I think I would have put a Bob's big boy halfway up, though. They reach the top, and they find themselves looking down on an equally large pit. Before they can go down, Lucifer says, they need to talk to Blue Flint Girl. Is that Blue Flint Girl's grandma or what? Says Rachel when the ghostly figure comes into view. Yeah, the ghostly figure of this ancient woman. It's just her name. One of her names. She's older than your entire race. Ah, you're here at last. You must be tired. Sit and eat with me. Actually, Mother of Whirlwinds, our business is fairly pressing. We'd like to go straight... Be quiet, Atse Hashke. I was speaking to my granddaughter. She calls him Atsahashke, which is another name for the coyote of Diné myth, a trickster spirit. 
She tells Lucifer to be quiet, which is pretty great. She offers Rachel corn pancakes, but she doesn't have any for Lucifer, so she makes him fetch the water so she can make more. You just love to twist the knife, don't you? He leaves. They're good. They're the worst thing I ever tasted in my whole life. But still, they're good. Eat them all. While Lucifer is gone, Blue Flint Girl warns Rachel that Lucifer is not helping her. Atze Hashke has his own reasons for everything he does. But he said if I came with him, I'd get my brother back. That is not what he said. The crying of your own spirit made you deaf to his words. And now he has walked in your footprints to this holy place. She does tell Rachel that if she ever decides to come back alone, the way will be open to her. Lucifer gets back and is once again denied pancakes. One jug of water. If you're really going to make me eat those things, go light on the bear's grease. Very light. This is no time to sit and fill your stomach, Atsuhashke. I thought you were in a hurry. Here, granddaughter, I have a gift for you. It's a jish, or medicine pouch. It's full of charms that she'll need to get where she's going. Yeah, specifically, a white bead, a yellow seed, a blue feather, and a black stone. When the bag is empty, the journey's over. Blue Flint Girl also tells Lucifer that his trick with the knife will tell them when they've actually arrived, and the guide he was looking for is going to be Rachel. When this is over, go to your grandfather. Ask him to sing a blessing way for you. My grandfather? You know him? Oh yes, I have had to deal with Hostine Sam three times. But you must go now. We'll talk again. So they're wandering through this sort of white wasteland. Rachel's not entirely sure what to do, so she plants the white bead in the mud. It stands for me, up to my neck in shit as usual. Those look like fish skeletons. They are fish skeletons. There was a flood here in the Dawn Age that killed many of your people. The fish skeletons yell at Rachel in the voices of her friends and family. What the hell is this? One of them says, why did you kill me, Rachel? Right, which is clearly Paul. I thought for a second here that they were the voices of the dead, but one is, this is your mother, why do you never write to me? So she's probably alive. Yeah. Lucifer explains that this is the fourth world, the salt waste left behind by the flood. If this is a spirit journey, everything's going to turn out to be some hokey symbol. She gives the fish skeletons a bit of a kickin'. Huh. She has no time for the guilt they're trying to lay on her. This is a barren land where seeds don't grow, and I just happen to have a seed right here in the pouch. Okay, here we go. Let's make the desert bloom, why don't we? So she throws the yellow seed, but it doesn't come down to the ground. Instead, it splashes in the water that is overhead. Right, the sky is actually full of water. Well done, you found out where the floodwaters went. And I think you've succeeded in attracting their attention. This enormous deluge falls on them. Rachel is understandably concerned that she's going to drown. Not if the water is only symbolic. Oh, for Christ's sake, don't just stand there taking cheap shots. Do something! The look on his face is so bummed out and passive. Try breathing. You'll be amazed at how much more comfortable you'll find it. Now they find themselves beneath the water. Not underwater, but beneath the water that is in the sky again. It's Uh, the third world. The one beneath the flood. Yeah, she asks why the flood happened, and Lucifer says, The usual reasons. The evil of the people made the elements move from their proper order. Be careful here. Third World is still full of the residue of that evil. And this is when the demon from the cover attacks. Yeah, there's a stone statue of Paul that shows up, talking normally, and offers to help. When Rachel goes over to him, he turns out to be that troll from the cover. And he takes the jish. Now, whore, let me show you what hurt is. Let me teach you all the ways of it. Flames spring out of the ground. Yeah, the monster is on top of Rachel, but it looks up in confusion. He is then pained, seems to have realized that he's lost, and then he turns to stone. How did that happen? How did he turn to stone? Is it because of the flames? I'm not sure exactly. (laughs) He was stone before, so maybe it's a thing where he needs to attack people from time to time to turn into flesh. Anyway, we see Lucifer pointing his hand at him, so Lucifer did it. Okay, fair enough. Okay, we came, we saw, almost got raped by a rock. Now can we... Yeah, I was going to say, this reads a lot like a rape scene, although it's not graphic at all. But Rachel does confirm on the next page that's what the monster was trying to do. Now they're standing on a cliff's edge. This gulf is the second world, and at the bottom is the first world. We can't go any further, unless you can find us a way down. So Rachel throws down the magic feather. 
the uh, blue feather. It doesn't seem like it does anything, but then the rock collapses under them, they fall, and they're fine. But it does kind of look like they're feather falling here. Oh, Lucifer at least. <laughs> He's feather falling with more dignity. Yeah. Is this the place? First world? Can you doubt it? The darkness is proof enough, even without the knife. He has drawn the knife here, and I wondered, you know, a knife owned by Mazakin featured prominently in Lucifer's plan to abandon hell. I wonder if it's the same one. I also kind of want to point out, just as we've been going through this journey, that Rachel seems much more like the main character in this issue. Lucifer is kind of her guide or sidekick, but she is the viewpoint that we're seeing this through. And that's interesting, because he is sort of playing that role to manipulate her. The story is playing along, tricking us the same way he's tricking her. Where are they? The voiceless gods. Let your eyes adjust to the dark, then look up. There is an enormous gray mass in the sky. Yep, they look up and they see the cloud monster from the original series episode Obsession. What is that thing? The Valiety. They wove it out of their own bodies. They're not tool users. He throws the knife at it? They stopped it. What now? Be quiet. It's still moving. My will is stronger than theirs. Then it shoots fire at them. You did say Lucifer gets some good burns. <laughs> did you think fire would burn me? I am the Lightbringer, Shepherd of Suns. At one point in this, someone calls him Prince of the East. Yes. Which is because the morning star rises in the East. Oh, okay. Not just that the East is more evil than the West, which would have been very ethnocentric. Yes, that's kind of what I thought. It is true that if you look to the East, the East is burning red. The voiceless gods speak. You cannot hurt us here in our place of power. The faith of humankind is grounded through us. We can move mountains now. Lucifer notes that they have voices now. Oh, we have arrived, haven't we? Voices, a place of power, a car in the garage. How dismayingly bourgeois your aspirations are. He warns them that the faith they've created will turn to poison once the wishes start going bad, but they refuse to give up their power. We will not give up this strength, this clarity, this sweetness. We had forgotten what it was like to be worshipped. If you are the bringer of light, let us see what the dark can do. There is a noise and a smell, and the predators are gathering around them. At this point, Lucifer starts berating Rachel for wishing her brother dead. I'm not a murderer. Of course you are. No! Apologies change nothing. Guilt changes nothing. You are what they made you. She shifts the blame to the now quite talkative gods and starts screaming at them. I'd rather die than pray to you. I hate you. You killed my brother. Good. Now make a wish. Just fucking die! And the sun comes out. Yep, there is a swirl of white cloud and a bright blue sky. That's that, I think. Time to go home. Rachel asks what the hell just happened. You happened. The Valeity was designed to satisfy desire. It's a commodity I'm short on, but yours did well enough. When you wished it gone, it had no choice but to destroy itself. By the way, you'll be needing this. Yeah, he hands her the jish, which now contains only the black stone. So yeah, when she wished it dead, it grants wishes, so it had to die. He apparently didn't have enough desire to make the wish. That's the other thing he needed her for. She asks, if the wish-granting thing is gone, how does she get Paul back? You don't. It's too late now. But you said... I said I'd give you an opportunity, not step-by-step instructions. You tricked me. You lied to me. Perhaps. But if you'd really wanted him back, it would have happened. I suspect that what you actually wanted was an excuse to forgive yourself. Right, so when she had the opportunity to make a wish, she could have wished for Paul back, but she didn't. She wished to defeat the voiceless gods and save the world, thus missing her opportunity. The devil was very exact in his words. Kind of a Hobson's choice. Yeah, and this is a really establishing moment for the Lucifer character. This moment is what sets him apart from being the hero of this story. No, he led her into temptation. Mm-hmm. She threatens to just leave him here, but it turns out he can just walk home from here. She needs the rock, he doesn't. Right, he's no longer on a pilgrimage, so he can make use of his teleportation powers again. She says that, like Bernita Green's kid, she's going to get strong and come back for her revenge. That's a pity. You'd managed to keep your head up above the melodrama until now. Goodbye, Rachel. She drops the black stone, it lands in the dust, and she is gone. Back to the world. The general opinion is that you did well, Lucifer Morningstar. It's not an opinion that I share. Amenadiel grudgingly hands over the letter of passage. 
He's pissed about the girl, but Lucifer reminds him. There's a whole shelf load of Christian commentaries about how good suffering is for the soul. Have you read them? They're great fun. I don't think I'd have the stomach for them right now. Lucifer reminds Amenadiel that he hired him, he sent him on the mission. Now off you go and wash your hands. I suggest steel wool. And on the last page, Lucifer sings torch songs, Billy Holiday's Stormy Weather specifically, as a tribute to the gods who up until so recently said nothing, and all the slaves of desire. Mahu, who the narration says is shipwrecked on the vast inland sea of his own rage. Yep, Frank Bagai waiting for his daughter to come home. And Rachel, heading west from Grants into the reservation land, looking for a blessing that she won't accept when it comes. Because all the waters of the ocean won't fill a bucket with a hole in it. Desire, he thinks, is the hole in the bucket. The gulf of yearning into which the soul empties itself. He drops a note. The discord is a tribute to them. And that's the end. The end of the Morningstar option, we should say. Now, the letter of passage itself, what it does and what Lucifer wants it for, that's completely unresolved in this story. Mike Carey admits as much in his foreword that this is a backdoor pilot he always intended to lead into an ongoing series. So yeah, there's still some plot threads hanging to pick up in the ongoing series. Mm-hmm. What did you think of this little story arc? This story arc. I'm putting aside the last page, and the fact that some of these elements seem like set up for something that never really happens, Mahu and the Lilim in particular, have yet to come back in issues of the ongoing series that I've read, anyway. Sure. And the last page strikes me as very, like, very writerly in that it's sort of trying to remind us that this story had a theme. Yeah, it's got a lot of good lines in it. Yeah, it has a, a ton of good lines. I love Lucifer's dialogue in this story. And I like a lot the fact that he tricks Rachel into helping, that he uses exact words to get her to think that she can get something out of this journey that she can't. Well, that she could, but he's counting on her not to. Exactly. The idea of Lucifer as the freelance agent for heaven would not end up being mostly what the series was about. That was kind of Neil Gaiman's pitch, but it went in its own way. And that's fine. That makes a lot of sense, actually, as we've seen Lucifer is uncomfortable with working for someone else. Independence is kind of his defining thing. You mentioned how you thought the last page was kind of writerly. Yeah. And I noticed that these three issues, I think none of them end on a full page. They all end on, like, a relatively small panel. Okay. If I'm remembering correctly. Okay. Yeah. Flat panel at the bottom of number two there. Oh, no, number one ends on a pretty big panel. So that that one at least works. But issues two and three yeah. both end on smallish panels. It's... You were saying it's kind of writerly. And, uh, yeah, it's not the best for a visual medium. It's kind of... It feels a little anticlimactic. Mm. Sort of... Ending on a long written paragraph as opposed to a powerful image. Right. Right. It does some decent work in terms of selling the concept of this universe and this story. We've seen the Sandman universe and we have an idea what it's like. You know, all myths are true. Creatures from different mythological systems interact with each other. Right. Belief is extraordinarily powerful. Well, yeah, and one of the things that we see in this is that Lucifer is several different versions of a trickster or tempter. Yeah, that's right. The character who is a Navajo or Diné guardian or spirit or god of some kind recognizes him as Atsahashke. Yeah, and then somebody else recognizes him as Samael. Yeah, and following in the footsteps of Sandman as well, we have the idea that the hero is basically unbeatable. <laughs> um, you know, extraordinarily powerful, incredibly hard to kill, so, really, suspense is going to come from interfering with his goals, not threatening him outright. Well, yeah, and sort of much like Dream, Lucifer is rather indifferent to human affairs, you know? Yeah. His indifference to Rachel really kind of reminds one of the way that Dream treated humans at times. Yeah, and that's perhaps one of the challenges in undertaking this series, in undertaking a series about the devil as a main character is to keep him sympathetic enough that we like him and we want to follow his adventures, but to keep reminding us that he is an extraordinarily cold and unfeeling figure, if not an evil one. Yeah. I, I gotta say, I don't think that these three issues quite hit the balance right. Okay. There's a little bit too much 
of Lucifer, like, lecturing Rachel mm-hmm. and, like, kind of, like, look how smart I am. I'm so smart, you're so dumb. <laughs> and, like, he just, he doesn't have that, like, Aloof detachment. Oh, oh, okay. Or seductive cool, I was going to say. Okay. Yeah, that's true. He's deliberately unpleasant with Rachel, frankly. Yeah. I want to call out a couple of other things from the forwards here. We have one by Neil Gaiman, one by Mike Carey. Neil Gaiman tells a funny story about Lucifer as a Sandman spinoff. Sometime in 1991, I had a meeting in a hotel room with a writer who wanted to write something for Vertigo. He asked me if there was any character I'd suggest pitching to the powers that be at Vertigo as a spinoff series. Lucifer, I said. He looked doubtful. It was a question I slowly grew used to as the decade continued. Who'd make a good spinoff character? Lucifer, I'd say. And like the writer in the hotel room, they'd say, anyone else? I think they were mostly worried that a comic starring the devil, even a devil who got bored and tired and resigned, might lead somebody to burn down the DC offices. This was particularly true when they were located at 666 Fifth Avenue. (laughs) Mike Carey also notes in his foreword that Gabriel was claimed by Hellblazer, and that's why he's offstage for this series. And he talks about Jesus Christ. On one level, it's a family drama, a story about a father and son and their failure to get along. Lucifer, he says, is more than an insubordinate servant in this series. He's a son trying to stand on his own. With that as the conceptual center of the book, we knew going in that if we introduced Jesus as a character, we'd be holding our metaphor below the waterline. So Jesus existed in the world of this series, obviously, but he's going to remain offstage and unimportant to the story. He's not a character. Yeah, uh, the other thing is that they tried to make a series starring Jesus, and it really was too much heat for DC. Tell me more about this. Mark Russell's Second Coming. Mm. Um, The idea is that Jesus and a Superman analog become roommates. DC. I think I heard about this series. This is pretty recently, right? It was part of the Vertigo relaunch, along okay. with, you know, Goddess Mode and Border Town and, right. you know, American Carnage, all those books. Hex Wives. Yes. But DC didn't end up publishing it. They passed on it, and Mark Russell took it to another company. Oh, I see. So it, it is going to come out from somebody else? It is coming out from somebody else, yes. Okay. Mark Russell is, of course, a great talent. Yeah. Behind some wonderful stuff. Uh, Flintstones? Yep. Snagglepuss? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And those were both good series. He's also the writer of the Red Sonja ongoing Mm, right now, which is a good comic book. So we've talked about the character of Lucifer a bit. We've talked about the the miniseries as a setup for the series, and we've talked about it a little bit as a successor to Sandman. What do you think about the art in this series? I didn't love it. Okay. It has a sort of painterly thing going on, which I think is very cool. And I think also kind of describes you know lots of artists that i like quite a bit painterly yeah yeah bilson cabbage for example yeah but this is just sort of i feel like it's kind of hazy and undetailed in a way that i didn't love you know what this reminds me of a lot in terms of its general look is the um horrorist limited series oh yeah david lloyd david lloyd yeah yeah i mean what this guy is doing, I think, can be done well. David Lloyd, Alex Ross. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it wasn't sharp enough for my tastes. Okay. Yeah. I do think some interesting things are done with darkness and light. The segment in the first world, in the world of darkness, is uh, entirely in almost black and shades of gray, with the exception of some cool blues. And then when we are freed from that sequence, we get a beautiful blue sky. Right. Sort of a tangible relief after a few pages of darkness. Yeah, that worked on a storytelling level, although I can't say that I thought it was, you know, eye-catchingly excellent. Mm -hmm. My favorite panel, I think, in this is the very dramatic panel when Paul chokes. Yeah, okay. But even that, like... It took me a second to realize that that wasn't Rachel. Oh, I see. So, you know. I see. Okay. Just not great. You just think that it could have been clearer as a storytelling medium. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. Do we want to talk about Rachel for a minute? What about her? Well, as the other main character for the series, it would have been nice to see her as a fully developed character in her own right, which I don't think she quite is. I mean, she gets more depth than you might expect from a sidekick. Okay. But she's certainly not, like, co-equal with Lucifer in this story, which is frustrating. Okay. It's annoying 
that she's a young female character and people keep, like, making sexual jokes about her. It's also annoying that she's continually getting shown up and having stuff explained to her. She's a young female character whose job in this, in this story is to not know and have things explained. Right. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate the kind of storytelling purpose of the fact that Lucifer tricks her and takes advantage of her. Mm-hmm. But I just wish that, like, I wish that was more of a twist. <laughs> and, less of, <laughs> and less of, like, well, you know, she's kind of treated like crap by everybody the whole story. Okay, yeah. So if, if in fact, Lucifer had seemed to bond with and respect her a little bit, it would come as more impactful when he actually tricks her. Right, and, and furthermore, you can, just, you can tell the story of Lucifer tricking somebody and being the fucking devil yeah. without having all this casual sexism along the way. Mm, okay, yeah. And it, it goes back a little bit to Morpheus. Many, many of the Sandman stories were essentially, here's a character, here is their perspective on Morpheus. And I think we were definitely more in their heads in the Sandman issues. Yeah. I think it would have been it would have been interesting to see Rachel's perspective on Lucifer. But it's almost like the comic can't really care less. <laughs> <laughs> I think she does have an interesting view on him. Particularly the part where like she accuses him of being a child blunster criminal and then immediately takes it back. You know, mm-hmm. she says she knows better. So there's clearly like, you know, She's frustrated by the way she's being treated, but she kind of senses a goodwill from him. Okay. Which, again, is where he's being tricky. (laughs) Not entirely right. Yeah, but but it's just, that theme is not developed. Okay. There's also the fact that she is a minority character. She's half Dine on her father's side. And that's used primarily by the protagonist as a tool. No, yeah, you're right. No, I, I thought of that too while I was reading it, and I didn't love that either. There is a little bit of cultural appropriation, for lack of a better term. Okay. Uh, cultural commodification going on there. I was willing to let that slide because I think cosmologically it's so interesting. Okay. This idea of like different creation stories. Particularly, I don't know if this is the read that the comic wants you to take, but particularly to me interesting is the idea that there's all these creation myths and they all happened. Right. <laughs> you know? That's really cool. And so I was willing to let a little bit of the kind of cultural commodification slide as a as an avenue into looking at different cultures. Mm, yeah. But you're right. It's not great. It's not awesome. Yeah, there is a moment in here where Lucifer, she mentions, you know, getting back home and he says, to the real world, indicating that, like, the worlds that they are in are equally real. Right. Equally present. Right, this is a hidden world, but not an unreal one. Yeah. So that's that's the Morningstar option. Use it only as a last resort. <laughs> All right, Mike Carey will be back in our next Lucifer episode, but Scott Hampton will not, as we launch into the ongoing series with a six-card spread. Uh, do we get Peter Gross for that? I don't think it's Peter Gross yet. Okay. You know that Peter Gross is his his artist partner on Unwritten and Highest House. Yes, if I'm not mistaken, Peter Gross comes in in the second major story arc. Okay. You mean the second major story arc of the ongoing, which is the third major story arc? Uh, yes. There's a line in the foreword about, after the first story arc, it ended up being Dean Ormston on fill-ins and Peter Gross on major story arcs. So when we get to... House of Windowless Rooms, Peter Gross takes over. Well, that's something to look forward to. I really love Mike Carey and Peter Gross together. Mm -hmm. But in our next episode, we're talking Hellblazer. Join us for Constantine's Finest Hour. Vertiguise is written and hosted by me and Sean. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. Our theme song is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguise.blueberry.com, where we've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. Vertiguise at gmail.com is the email, at vertiguise is the Twitter, and facebook.com slash is the Facebook. You can reach Sean at BlankCastSean on Twitter. 
pimp us on podcast platforms. <laughs> if you are listening to us on the Apple Podcast app or any other podcast app, we'd certainly appreciate positive ratings and reviews. And hey, tell your friends about Vertiguys. We like friends. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. I remember a conversation with a friend years ago where he was saying that, um, I know what you did last summer is the only slasher movie he can think of where the killer also has a day job. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, it kind of seemed like that's where Scream 2 was going. Okay. But then they changed their minds at the last minute. Okay. One of the killers in Scream 2 is a reporter. And it's like, oh, is she killing people just to have a story to report? And it seems like they kind of set that up and they made it look like that was the deal for a minute. And then they kind of made it like, oh, no, actually, she's the mother of the killer from the first movie. So she wants revenge. Oh. And it's like, oh, okay. That's less interesting. (laughs) It would have been kind of, it would have been kind of more novel and more funny if it was just like, yeah, she's a reporter. (laughs) She's killing people so that she has a story to report. I'm going to put this on the table right now. If you kill between 7 and 11 teenagers and then die, I'm not going to get revenge. (laughs) Right, yeah, like, yeah, exactly.